Tonight I want to talk about the deepening levels of truth. <clears throat> Satcha, S-A-C-C-A, truth. When you think about it, the reason at all we do any kind of spiritual anything, it's because of our sincere seeking for the truth. It's the absolute beginning and ending and driving force of everything that we're doing. This exploration. It's, um, it's the source of our inspiration and finding truths as we find them is the uh, harvesting, if you like, of liberation. It's the essence of the whole thing. Read a little bit of what Krishnamurti says about this. One of the things Krishnamurti says is, it is the truth that liberates, not our efforts to be free. And he also says, to understand truth, one must have a very sharp, precise, clear mind. Not a cunning mind, but a mind that's capable of looking without any distortion a mind innocent and vulnerable. Only such a mind can see what truth is. Nor can a mind that is filled with knowledge perceive what truth is. Only a mind that's completely capable of learning can do that. Learning is not the accumulation of knowledge. Learning is movement from moment to moment. And truthfulness, the commitment to this, <clears throat> was the one quality of all the many perfections of being a fine being that the Buddha as a bodhisattva always, always honored and exemplified through his many lifetimes of evolving and learning the various lessons. And he said he recalled thousands of these lifetimes, but the one common attribute that was there throughout any and all of them was truthfulness. It's such a foundation thing. So I want us to explore a little bit tonight what we mean by this, because it isn't like there is a thing that's true, that that, that is, the truth is a even a graspable object. It's always a shifting experience. And as we see when we're with you, and as you see as you do this kind of thing, even from one moment to the next, from one sitting to the next, definitely from one day to the next, what's true for you one day is not at all true for you another day. And it's a constant shifting sand that you're in, this exploration. So there are these various truths that we explore and so I want to talk about how they then come to more common and more common truths which liberate us. One thing that I discovered recently in listening to a teaching was that the um, original um, use more of the language that, of the days of the Buddha, the Pali language, um, much more used verbs than the English language, which much more uses nouns. So a lot of the words which we get and have translated as things like truth or um, you know, understanding or in many of the translations, mindfulness, 
could just as easily or even more appropriately be translated as verbs. So truing or being true rather than finding the object truth. So I just want to help us let go a little of the tendency that we have and we've always had as we've evolved to actually um, observe life in terms of subject-object, the duality, and describe and relate to our world in terms of these miscellaneous objects as though they were fixed. To help us begin to explore the possibility of life being more of experiencing than getting. <clears throat> the word Dharma, many, many translations, many, many uses, but the very popular translation of the Dharma, well, one of them is the teachings, the way the Buddha taught, what he taught. But what he taught is the truth, is the nature of reality, is the true nature of things or the natural laws. That was his teaching. Everything that he taught, he was always emphasizing that this is the way, it, the way things unfold. See for yourself how things unfold. He also taught lots of aspects of truth in his various teachings, the very foundation teachings of the Four Noble Truths, the four ennobling aspects it's possible to experience which liberate us. Truths, the four truths. He also emphasized truth in the development and cultivation of ourselves as we go through the Eightfold Path, Sila, Samadhi, and Panya, our understanding of the truth of things. Right view is nothing but seeing things truly. Sila is acting out of our deep truth. Acting wisely is truly. And the very first emphasis of the very first of the ways of behavior that are discussed in the Eightfold Path is right speech. And the very first description of right speech is don't lie. Speak the truth. Right there. First training. Essential, this stuff. There are the teachings for those of you who care or like lists of the ten perfections of how to be a being. And number seven is truthfulness. So all through these teachings, of course, we have this common theme. The thing about how this all unfolds is it's not taking a fact. This is a fact. This is the truth. Believe this. You've got to, fig you know, you've got to accept this. There's no dogma, as we all know, in this practice. It's practice. It's see for yourself what is so for you. What's your understanding? What you can rely on? What you come to understand? It's an experiencing. It's a living experience of truth-telling rather than an object of fact or an accumulation of information. It's really more an exploration than an explanation. And then when it's your own understanding, whatever that may be, which will be growing and shifting as you continue, your understanding is yours and no one can say, oh no, you didn't get that. You didn't understand that. That was, a, that was wrong. Anything you've ever seen, and as you do this practice, you know these insights that come to you, no one can argue with you. You've seen something, you've understood something, it's verified. You feel in your system, yes. Like, 
yes, I know, I know that's right. There's that conviction that comes with this exploration. Indisputably, reliably, this is so, this is the truth. I don't know who it was, but one of my fellow teachers here said on one of these talks, this retreat, if you, um, I don't remember the quote exactly, but something like, if there's a disagreement between the bird that you're seeing and the field guide, trust the bird. Because that's actually much more the direct truth this whole explanation is going to the direct truth for each one of us. So I want to talk a little bit about what truth is not, what Im impedes it before I go into more, what facilitates it and how it unfolds and liberates us. So I'm going to quote again that Krishnamurti quote I began with. We have this sharp, precise, clear mind. This is what we need to be able to see. One of the descriptions of um, clear seeing or insight practice is um, describing Manjusri's sword, which penetrates or cuts through delusion. So this precise, clear mind can cut through delusion to expose what's true. So our practicing is to establish a calm, clear, precise mind, <coughs> sharp. But a mind that is capable of looking without distortion, not a mind that's filled with knowledge, these two pieces I want to just speak about here. Because what we tend to do is we tend to think we know something. And as soon as we think we know something, our mind isn't innocent and available. It's already half or three quarters or completely filled up with what we think we already know. There is a teaching about um, having a mind that's available, and it uses as a reference a bowl did I talk to you about a bowl as an example? I don't think I did in this, in this retreat. When a mind is receptive and available, <laughs> it's like a bowl that's functioning as a bowl should. When a bowl has, is not working appropriately, it's got some defects, it's called. One defect a bowl would have to make it not function properly would be it would have a hole in it. And so whatever comes into it just goes pouring straight out. So if your mind is absent or you're not giving attention to something, then some information may come to you because it will go dribbling right on through in one ear and out the other, equivalent. That's not the kind of mind that can see the truth very clearly. Another defect of a bowl is if the bowl, we don't have any little bowl to use, I have to pretend, we're upside down. This upside-down bowl is completely unavailable to receive something or contain something, the function of a bowl. So when something comes to the bowl to be able to held in it, it just disappears, pours off. This is when our mind is already filled up with confidence, with certainty. I know all about that. You can't tell me anything new. No space. No availability. This kind of mind is unavailable. The truth is unavailable to us. We are unavailable to be revealed the truth to. And the third defect of a bowl is a bowl that um, isn't just a pure clean bowl, but it's a bowl that's already got something in it. 
So when you add whatever you want to add to the bowl, it's going to be contaminated by what's already in there, say yesterday's remains of the meal. So you put something fresh in it and it will no longer be untainted. This is a description of a mind that already has some kind of bias, some kind of prejudice, some already spin or stance or take on a situation. Not fresh. Krishnamurti used this word, a mind innocent and vulnerable. There's no innocence if there's already some prejudice in the mind. Opinions and views, the Buddha uses description quite often. There is such danger in the opinions and views because of this very reason. The truth can't be revealed to us clearly. It's distorted already. Disturbed. So see for yourself if from time to time there is this attitude in your mind of, for instance, the know-it-all. And that feeling of being full up already, rather than that innocent beginner's mind that may yet hear something fresh, even if it's something you think you've heard before many times. Then there's another thing that we can have in our minds which is extra and disturbing or not allowing us to see the truth. And this is what we do so much in this culture of ours. It's a little phrase I like to coin, it's the tyranny of idealism. When we're being idealistic, we have already some expectation of how we're supposed to be, or how it's supposed to be, or how she's supposed to be, or any expectation is actually interfering with that innocent mind. And it tyrannizes us. And we do it so habitually. We judge ourselves because we are assuming that we're supposed to be something else, more, better, not this. We may feel that we're doing it, it sort of can masquerade. The trouble with idealism, it masquerades as wisdom. You know, it's like we really know best. We think we know how it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be such and such a way, and that's a gold standard, and so we won't measure up. But in fact... Having such an attitude obliterates the possibility of what actually is here. And of course, we all know what it does if we're applying it to ourselves, which is what we do so much, is our standard for ourselves. We've set the bar too high. And then all that happens is an enormous amount of opportunity for all kinds of frustration, disappointment, judgment, blaming, unworthiness, and all of those familiar stories and movies and plays that we act out for ourselves. The tyranny of idealism. When I was in Burma a year ago, or more, whenever it was, um, in a retreat center, which wasn't a restrictively silent retreat center, there were various conversations going on among yogis quite a lot of the time. And there were two people who were Westerners from Seattle area. I hadn't met them before, but we spoke from time to time. And um, they were a couple, husband and wife. And um, they hadn't been to this particular monastery before, but they'd been practicing at other monasteries around Burma for quite a few years. And um, so they were attempting to come with relatively fresh minds to this teacher and this monastery and learn this approach and so on. 
And so she had said to him, they told me this together after, she said to him, I think I'm going to have really low expectations so that I can just receive whatever I can receive. And he said to her, hmm, sounds a good idea. Why don't you have no expectations? <laughs> so she said, hmm, that sounds like a really good idea. <laughs> Should, shouldn't, right, wrong. Judge, fail. Then I think of the innocent one, the child, and how the children don't say this should be or this shouldn't be or this isn't fair. Or sometimes they say this isn't fair. This is a little, a, a little uh, from a whole bunch of letters from children to God. This particular child said to God, did you actually mean to make giraffes like that, or was it a mistake? <laughs> that kind of, maybe it's okay, maybe it isn't. That kind of curious wonder that we're always talking about, in, you know, how, what attitude to bring to this. Instead of it's supposed to, that's ridiculous. How often do we say, oh, that's absurd. I have a good friend, and she's English as I am, and we have many phrases in common, and one we often say to each other is, oh, that's absurd. And it's a completely closing off possible understanding, isn't it? It's a very condemning phrase. We do it as a joke, but it's got a little speck of truth in there. That, that judgment, that opinion... So we can watch for ourselves how much we do this, how much we think this is how it's supposed to be, and we can't tolerate how it is. This is, too, this is awful. This is too much. I can't stand this. How many times do we say this in a life, you know? How easy is it in traffic? Like, oh, God, this is awful. I'm never going to be able to handle this. We say these things, and sometimes we can just know that it's just a little chit-chat going on in the mind, but a lot of the time we actually believe it. I can't stand this. I'm never going to be able to stand this. When I first, myself, when I was first in Burma, I hadn't been there in my life before, and I'd been many years ago as a young woman in an ashram in northern India in the springtime. It wasn't that hot. It was hot. There were flies on the food. It was I had to clean the showers for the longest time. There's all kinds of things that I found really difficult, and I was saying to myself for several days, I can't practice here. This is hopeless. You know, I'm never going to... This is way too hot. I, I'd taken my... Unfortunately, I'd taken with me my Lonely Planet Guide to Burma, and I was reading about other places that were cooler and cleaner, and <laughs> that's where I should go and practice. And now I'm going to stay here, listen to these teachings, and take them and practice where I can actually practice. <laughs> it took me a few days to realize, oh, <laughs> why did I come to Burma? <laughs> to be comfortable? Or to be with what is? Can I be okay with what is instead of this is impossible? So how many times do we say, this is too much, I'm never going to be able to do this? In actual, you do. If you're in the middle of traffic and you can't stand it, you stand it. What else are you going to do? The truth is, you totally can stand it. It's just an opinion that you can't or you won't or it's not okay. Those opinions are what get us in the way of being with Reality as it is. And we keep ourselves away from reality so much of the time. Just listen to that inner commentator. Is it telling you the truth or not? Mostly not. 
So expectation. Expectation is absolutely doomed. It leads to disappointment almost every time. George Bernard Shaw says there are two disappointments in life. One is not getting what you want. The other is getting it. It's very disappointing to discover that you're not satisfied, isn't it? So expectations are dangerous. They keep us trapped with what we would like and uh, obliterate us from being able to see what is. We're already somewhere else when we have an expectation. We're already in what isn't, wanting what isn't to be here with what is. Not the clean, pure innocence. Another thing that we must be aware that we tend to do that won't help us in our quest for the truth is to um, try and separate parts of an experience. We only want, for example, one of the teachings of the Buddha is about the eight vicissitudes, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. We want 10,000 joys, thank you very much. We do not want the 10,000 sorrows of which they are completely inseparable. There's something wrong when we have the sorrows and there's something right when we have the joys, we think. We want half the deal. And that's completely impossible. We still behave as though it were possible. We complain when the other half is there. You cannot have an up without having a down. They're essential. They are attached to each other. But we don't see this. We don't behave as though we really understand this. So then we're shocked when we discover we really like somebody, but they turn out to be beautiful and kind and a nervous wreck. And we want the beautiful, kind bit, but we don't want the other bit. How much do we do this with people, with ourselves? We like some parts of ourselves, we can't stand the other parts of ourselves, and it puts us in conflict, because we can't see that there is an and there, or that there could be. When I was uh, on retreat recently at Guy House, I mentioned this to you before, um, in the fall, um, one of the things I love about practicing in England, having grown up in England, is one of my little favorite hobbies is, uh, is looking at the birds. I love all these songbirds. And uh, one of the most beautiful garden birds in England is called the blackbird. And uh, it's about, it is the same family as the thrush family, the same as the robins here, that size of a bird. There are many of them right around the houses and gardens in England, those who don't know. And the males are very, very densely black. And they have an orange, strikingly orange beak and a strikingly orange ring around their eye. They're very handsome. And they have a beautiful, beautiful song, especially in spring and early summer. They don't sing in the winter, but they're still very handsome. And so one day I was looking out of my window at this very handsome, actually several of them, blackbird. And as I watched it, thinking, what a beautiful fellow you are. It had been raining, as it often does in the fall. And um, on the, the roadway, the pathway where it was, were quite a few, they look like they're drowned. I don't know if they actually are or if they will recover, but worms, you know how worms are when it's been raining. And so this beautiful, handsome thing just proceeded to eat about five of these drowned worms, which were such disgusting things in my mind. And it was like, I didn't want to accept this aspect of the blackbird. I wanted it to be cool and handsome and beautiful and not disgusting. You know, and many a time I would watch them struggling and yanking this poor, big, fat, living worm out of the ground. And the reality is, of course, that they are 
gorgeous looking and they live on killing insects and worms. And this is all through our experience. Stuff that we think of as lovely, but in there is also all kinds of other things. Once I was on retreat right here, it was probably a springtime retreat, I don't remember the time of year, and I was sitting outside the dining room, and there was another yogi sitting beside me in the bench that's outside there. We were sitting, it was warm weather, we were eating lunch, our lunches silently, and we both noticed at the same time one of those very, very electrically blue, beautiful little dragonflies, just there down on the cement right where we were. And we were sitting and we both know that we were both going, wow, look at that color. You know, we were, had these quiet minds and nature is so inspiring, all the rest of it. And then in a flash, up comes a salamander. <laughs> no more. You know, that was the end of that. And we both, <laughs> there's this shock of like, oh my God, we were thoroughly enjoying and now we weren't so happy to have this now swallowed, swallowed thing just gone. And could we feel as friendly and interested and delighted in the salamander now? It had just viciously stolen our object of joy. This is how it is. It's this peculiar mix in this frame, this plane. Are we prejudiced about the stuff that would disturb us? Or are we able to actually be open and interested in it all? The ups and the downs, the eight, not the four vicissitudes. What we do, of course, as we practice, is our practice is, I mean, I just really think it's, I say this quite often, this practice is truth-telling practice. We're telling the truth as we sit here. That's what we're doing. What is actually so here? And as we do this, this transformation happens, this extraordinary purification happens because, and I'll describe some of it, and a lot of you already understand this, how by being willing to look Truth is revealed to us. What is not available to us when we are not present and not looking becomes available. And this process that happens more and more becomes available to us, more and more becomes clear to us. It's like, as some people describe, the swirling glass full of muddy water slows down. And so all the confusion and mud, and you can't see what's there, it's just a swirling mass, settles out and we begin to see all the little pieces that are in there, all the components, all the different parts that made up this mud. It isn't mud when it stops swirling, it's sand and sticks and all kinds of things. It's only muddy if it's all swirled up. One way of describing how this practice reveals to us what's there. Another is the lowering of the horizon of what's conscious and what's unconscious. It's like our normal day-to-day life, so much is conscious to us, and there's a whole lot that's just below the horizon of consciousness. And as we quieten down and settle down our minds, this horizon sinks. It's like tide going out. And then more stuff that was hidden has become available to us. It's like that's how the process is, is working, by telling the truth, by looking. But of course, what's there as the level goes down as the glass, muddy water slows down, is the good and the bad and the ugly and the warts and all. And so it takes gumption, as we know, to do this truth-telling practice. And sometimes we don't want to actually keep looking. We don't like what we're seeing. 
takes uh, an unflinching eye. It takes honesty to be with the truth. And it takes strength sometimes to be frank, to be candid. And at times when somebody's very frank and forthright, we wince because we didn't really want to hear it all. And sometimes when people say the truth, and particularly the hard truths and the, the unpleasant truths, it's incredibly inspiring because it's like finally somebody actually has the gumption to say what needs to be said here. So there's a lot of strength in doing it because it's challenging sometimes. Oftentimes, we would rather be comfortable than be with what is true, which is why we avoid and why we bargain and why we blame anything but facing it, allowing it in many times. But we won't become liberated if we can't be with whatever is presenting itself. Can we accept? whatever it is, completely just as it is. That's one of my favorite metaphrases. May I love and accept myself completely just as I am. So some of the ways we do this truth-telling practice is one description of the truth, telling the truth, is just the truth without the extra embellishment. We go to what's underneath, what's underneath our explanations, what's underneath our stories, what's underneath our rationalizations and commentary, to what's really there. The bare attention of practice is truth-telling. Underneath the coverings, underneath the veils, called defilements or distortions, or all those words, underneath all what we add to a situation, just to the essence, which is why, for instance, being aware of an experience, say it's an emotion, and if it's complicated, being able to feel it in our bodies just helps us get to the, to the elements of what it is, rather than all the confused extra that we're justifying it with or putting it onto. The truth is underneath what I'm telling, the story I'm telling, my inner chattering, my thoughts. I was seeing somebody today in an interview, and she found herself at some point with a song just coming. You know how sometimes that happens, you're on a retreat, a song just shows up. Sometimes they won't leave you alone, so I won't sing it for you in case it gets stuck in you. But this little phrase of this song was like, you don't own me. You don't own me. And it was about her thoughts and feelings. And once she realized, you don't own me, you're just thoughts and feelings, then there's that moment of freedom. Another way this truth-telling practice works is it, it punctures the monsters. It reduces the monsters from being monsters to being just whatever they are, anxiety or boredom, by naming them, just by telling the truth of actually this is fear. It, it doesn't have that same overwhelming threat. We're making it conscious, bringing it in front of ourselves, reducing it to what it really is rather than worrying about what it could be or might be or could become, the threat of swallowing us up. There's a beautiful poem, one of my favorites, 
by Hafez. The small man, it's appropriate for this evening, you'll see why, the small man builds cages for everyone he knows, while the sage, who has to duck his head when the moon is low, keeps dropping keys all night long for the beautiful, rowdy prisoners. Those things lurking in the unconscious. The keys are the truth, right? We're just letting them out, these beautiful and often rowdy prisoners, so that they cannot be so monstrous. In, as they stay locked down in the dungeons, they, they're monsters. They can be just beautiful prisoners if we can let them out with our truth-telling. It's a little story in Jack Cornfield's book. You're eight years old. It's Sunday evening. You've been granted an extra hour before bed. The family's playing Monopoly. You've been told you're big enough to join them. You lose. You're losing continuously. Your stomach cramps with fear. The money pile in front of you is almost gone. Your brothers are snatching all the houses from your streets. The last streets being sold, you have to give in, you've lost. And suddenly you know that it's only a game. You jump up with joy and you accidentally knock the lamp over. It falls on the floor and drags the teapot with it. The others are angry, but you laugh when you go upstairs. You know, for you have seen the joy of being nothing and having nothing. And knowing that gives an immeasurable freedom. Let's let those rowdy prisoners out. Another aspect of our truth-telling practice is the intimacy of it. Intimacy is honesty, isn't it? When you're in an intimate situation, no hiding, vulnerable, deeply true, exposed, no pretending, no game-playing. One of the words that's described that some people use in giving instructions for the second factor of awakening of investigation is intimacy. Become intimate with your fear, with your irritation, with your boredom. Get close to it. Really know it. This is the truth. Truth Truth-telling. So some of those experiences that are difficult that we don't want to deal with are powerfully revealing and liberating and helpful. I'm thinking of being in a situation that we normally in the culture like try and completely hide away, being with somebody in the last days of their life as they're dying. A friend, well, a friend, an associate of mine, an acquaintance, member of our sangha, died last fall. And, um, and I was involved quite a lot with the last, well, weeks and months, but certainly the very last days of his life. And um, it's, very, it's very sobering, very powerful, awesome, those of you who've been around this kind of experience, to actually keep your eyes open, unflinchingly be there with this process that we mostly want to avoid. I've had tons of experiences, you can imagine, delivering babies on the other end of it. That's another challenging time, a lot of it difficult. Becoming so intimate when we're with deep truths in this way, it just strips us of the predictions, it strips us of the avoiding the deep truth that's here. You can't. When you're in something as, as deeply powerful and truthful as dying or being born, there's no room 
for the ego. There's no room for storytelling and image, ego, pretense. It's very, it strips away the game playing that we otherwise tend to do. A little story Jack has told about Ajahn Shah, his teacher, they were going for a car ride to visit another monastery. And it was a longish ride, and it was a very rough road, and it was very scary with, I don't know what, the details of the cliffs or the whizzing drivers going very fast around blind corners or whatever. It was a rough and difficult ride, and it was scary. And Ajahn Chah was sitting in the front, and Jack was able to see that his knuckles, he had like white knuckles clinging to the dashboard. And Jack was like, oh my God, he's afraid too. And when they got to the destination, Ajahn Chah hops out of the car and says, scary, wasn't it? <laughs> that honesty of being able to meet that was fear you know and how we tend not to especially when those things are difficult that was really painful we don't want to let it in the same way but we can only be okay with it if we can completely allow ourselves to feel it yeah scary even more when we've been able to tell the truth of, in these difficult times and those profound moments and challenging moments, only after we've been able to tell the truth about some difficulty between us and somebody is it possible for somebody to say, I'm sorry. Or for somebody to be able to say, I forgive you. You have to have the truth out there first before you can move beyond it. To be able to really have compassion for somebody who's suffering, we have to completely be in the truth of the suffering, or else there isn't the ability to have true compassion. We're still in pity or fear or blame or something, justification, or you'll get well tomorrow, or you're looking so much better today. Avoidant. The truth is what's required for Brahma-Vihara, to abide in openness. And then there's that relief that comes with it when we can. This really sucks. This is really hard. What a relief to be able to let it in. It's so much more exhausting to resist. Bhikkhu Bodhi says these few words about truth. Thus, much more than an ethical principle, devotion to truthfulness is a matter of taking our stand on reality rather than in illusion on the truth grasped by wisdom rather than the fantasies woven by desire. So then when we are able to meet in this way, whatever it is that's coming at us with truthfulness, there's actually an enormous amount of power released. We're very uh, hampered by denial and avoidance. We're very empowered when we can deal with the truth. When honesty is really there, it feels liberating and it feels sweet, but it also feels incredibly powerful. When any, any of you have been through some very challenging situation and just like thoroughly faced it and thoroughly been there, there's a strength that's there. There's a lot of confidence that comes with the ability to be with the difficult or the extraordinary or the boring even. Confidence grows. And without the opposite, when we lie or we don't, we know we don't quite deal with the truth, you know how we get so confounded by that. 
Now that stage of, oh my, what, what's that phrase? What tangled webs we weave. As soon as I tell a little distortion, then I have to cover it up with another one, and then I don't want somebody to see me there, so I've got to go the other way, and on and on. And It's just like, oh, very inhibiting. Another thing about our practice that I would say, this truth-telling practice, is it's an incredibly, utterly alive practice. It's a living practice. It is not theoretical practice. It's immediately lived. We're living truth by facing truth. We're being with what is so in this moment. We're exploring right now the truth of this moment. It's a thoroughly alive kind of a practice. It's, it's full of color, full of vigor. Theory isn't. Real experiential, direct life is this practice. There's a story about facing the truth of um, Chogram Trungpa when he was a kid. He was a monk, young, eight or nine-year-old boy, with his teacher, and they were going for a walk, walking across the country to go and visit another monastery. And as they approached this other, which is also a whole town and a lot of people, as they approached... I've never been anywhere near Tibet, so I can only imagine this. Apparently, very, very commonly, outside the gates of these various, even small hamlets, there are many times dogs guarding for, I guess, the yeti or whatever it is they're defending themselves from. And so this was the case, and this, this, the two of them are walking along. As they're approaching, this mastiff is chained there. It's like leaping and barking and threatening and warning them off, the guard dog. But they're really large, these and so, you know, this little boy was getting a little anxious. And the closer they got, the more, you know, vigorously this mastiff was barking. And then they got really close, and in one big lunge, the chain broke. And this huge dog is now, like, rushing at them very aggressively. And they both turned, both he and his teacher turned on their heels, and they ran full tilt away from this mastiff, bounding at their heels. And then, in a few seconds... His teacher stopped dead in his tracks, turned around completely and ran just as fast straight for this mastiff, which had never had anything chase it before, so it put its tail between its legs and ran and hid in the monastery. (laughs) And Chogram Trumpa explained how he realized that his teacher was doing that for his own benefit and teaching him about facing and running towards rather than running away from. Running away from the thing of fear is just totally building fear. Very, very exaggerated example for an eight-year-old, but interesting to remember. So then more about, as we do this truth-telling practice, how is this deepens, deepens us from superficial awareness to deeper and deeper truths, which are more and more revealing. Our deep qualities, says Thomas Merton, are like wild animals, which only come out when they feel safe but are always there. The more we're able to tell the truth, the safer the territory, and the more the depths of our beings can come out. The more we're avoiding and resisting and anxious, the less it's possible to actually get in touch with our deeper selves. Here's a little experiment. This is a tiny little experiment. This is an apple. What color is the apple? 
Red. Red. This is the same apple. What color is the apple? We spend our lives mostly on the red level. And this practice takes us to actually that that's very superficial. That's true. It's not not true. It's not not red. It actually looks red. And it's sort of red. But as soon as you get inside it, it isn't red at all. It's a completely different color. As soon as we start penetrating what seems to be the truth of ourselves, of our life, of our experiences, of our world, of each other, we begin to find really what's going on. And what's going on isn't usually anything like what appears to be going on. We appear all to be sitting here peacefully, completely liberated, no problem, the odd nod. Meanwhile, there's an awful lot going on, not at all what's being revealed. Even in yourself, you're seeing this all the time. We're seeing our prejudices, we're seeing our judgments, we're seeing how our bowls are full of opinions and biases, how we're avoiding. We're seeing our patterns, we see our habits, we see our conditioning. So this practice, as it deepens us, basically it's like it starts taking apart what appears to be the case, dismembering it into the components. What we thought it was and what we thought we were, we aren't. And Guy's talk last night was exactly this. The solidity of what seems to be me, we start dismembering into these strands of what really is going on there. It's not at all what we thought. And this can be very unnerving, as you know, and very fascinating. But it means an awful lot of letting go of what we thought it was and who we thought we were and who we would like to think ourselves to be. Remembering that what we tend to do in the way we've survived in our lives is, as I said in the very beginning, is to notice objects, the things. And our language reinforces it and our whole culture reinforces it. Invest in this thing and you will be better off. Avoid that thing and you will be better off. Our whole language, everything, reinforces all of this. But as we look more closely underneath the surface of things, we discover that it isn't really so much about the things that we're seeing, it's the process that we're seeing. It's how there isn't really this separate thing. Like, for example, let's go back to the blackbird and the worm for a minute. When does the worm become a blackbird? When I had that amazing experience walking over the hill and saw the whole field swathed in cobwebs with that sunshine on it, like I told you about, my very next thought was, I knew there were a lot of spiders in these fields, but I didn't know there were that many spiders. And my very next thought was, no wonder there are so many birds here. Because, of course, this is completely bird food. Where does the spider become the bird food? I mean, feeding is one of the most gross ways of connecting with what we aren't and what things aren't. An apple. That's only a name for a temporary accumulation of moisture and some cells. And very soon, if I eat that apple, it's not going to be an apple. It's going to be Heather. 
It's going to be blood and it's going to be stomach stuff and it's going to be, you know, what all it's going to be. And where does, where does Heather start and stop in all of that? On and on. I was eating. I just got so into the whole eating thing for some reason on that last retreat. I was eating potatoes, which I really like, being English and all. Roast potatoes one day. And as I ate these potatoes, I had this cruelly realization, which of course is the truth, and I know, so it felt like yes. It was like, oh, this is how you become English, is you eat England. <laughs> Here's a little tiny piece of England, and you eat it and you become it. And then I was thinking about traveling in airplanes, which I have to do quite a bit, and how the air in the airplane, you know, it's us. This air is your lungs and my lungs and everybody's lungs. No wonder people get sick on airplanes, but it's like the air makes us all one thing. There is that little saying about the, the last breath you just took right now has absolutely for sure one particle of Julius Caesar's dying breath in it. As we start looking underneath the surface of things, we start to see how things aren't the way that we thought they were at all. These separate bits and pieces that we keep draw, as a guy so beautifully described last night, we kind of draw out of reality a piece of it, a bit of it, and say, this is something. That's just the mind sucking it out. It isn't actually drawn out of anything. Nothing's taken out of anything else except by our creation, by our mental perception. This gets to be quite fascinating as we go through these stages in our practice and see how we do this. Hmm. There's this beautiful little poem by William Blake. He who binds to himself a joy does the winged life destroy. He who kisses a joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. But we take these things, even joy, even happiness, out as though they are a thing to have and to hold and to gain and to achieve and to show off about, look good with, any of it. The winged life is thus destroyed. But not to not connect, we can kiss this flow. We can allow it and feel it and be intimate with it without this having to separate it out and make meaning out for me and for it. This is what is the, puts the break in the, in the flow. So we see in underneath the surface that the substantialness of the things that we make life into isn't true. The truth is these things are just words. They're just a temporary appearance of something, as Guy said last night, that on which we put a label, that's all they are. It's just life manifesting up and down, up and down, round and round. Whether it's called spider or blackbird or worm or bird's song or Heather's happy heart because of the bird's song that becomes calm, where can you separate any of these pieces? It's a fallacy to do that. It's not the truth to separate. The truth is to connect. The truth is revealing that separation is only superficial. Not not true that spiders exist and apples exist, but it's not all. It's only, it's only a little bit. So then when we start seeing this 
interweaving or interbeing, as Thich Nhat Hanh says. It isn't just that things are connected. We see how this, because there's a, there's a flow of time, this affects and creates the next, which creates the next, which creates the next. And so everything's affecting everything. Everything's influencing everything. Everything is alive. It isn't just one big blur. It's a movement. And so things are causing and being caused by other things. And this is, this is where somebody asked me the other day about free will. And this is where our part that we play knowing that everything is influenced by and influences everything else, my behavior has the responsibility of contributing to this unfolding of cause and effect. And my very behavior is because of the influences on me. Where is the separation between free will? When we think of free will, we're actually thinking of it in terms of being separate individuals. Do I, as a separate individual, have separate choice. When we see more deeply, where is the division? Isn't my behavior the mass result of everything that's happened before with a little bit of choice? Maybe some space to make some options? Nothing like so discreet and black and white as we mostly see in our usual way of going about things. One other thing about food. <laughs> when I was a young woman, I was uh, traveling in Europe in a Volkswagen van and was driving from Switzerland into Italy, going over the high pass, the Semplon Pass, and turned the van off. And we got out and went for a walk in the high summer in the high Alps. And every footstep covered, I don't know how many, 600 flowers? the alpine flowers, and this is the country in this particular area, fields where the brown Swiss cows go in the summer, so that they weren't big tall, they were very tiny, apart from their alpine flowers are tiny, these were very tiny, very low, so it's like walking on a complete carpet of flowers every step. And my mind said, even in those days, my mind said, no wonder lint chocolate is the best chocolate in the world, <laughs> because it's just flowers. <laughs> because the the milk that's produced from these cows, and this was in the days when chocolate was mostly milk chocolate. The beginning of chocolate, just for your information while I'm on the food topic, <laughs> at least the beginning of Cadbury's, the firm Cadbury's, was um, as a kind of uh, virtuous opposition to alcohol because they were a, a Mormon family or some religious family, and it was like promoted as be healthy and eat wholesome chocolate because of all the milk in it instead of drink you know, something that's less wholesome. And so the initial, and for a very long time, um, impulse of chocolate was the milk of it. So in those days, you mostly got milk chocolate from Switzerland. Anyway, where is the flower? Where is the brown Swiss cow? Where is, where is Heather being happy with chocolate? You know, it's all one big unfolding, isn't it? Mm. So... If we do our part, which is keep looking, truth will reveal itself more and more subtly, more and more deeply to us. Now, we cannot go and figure this stuff out. We can't go looking for the truth. 
It isn't an object. It isn't a thing we can get. All we can do is our part, which is keep the eyes open, keep curious, be available. With the kind of mind that Krishnamurti described, and I began to speak, what did he say? Say it again. A sharp, precise, clear mind, not a cunning mind, but a mind that's capable of looking without distortion, innocent and vulnerable, not a mind that's filled with knowledge, only a mind that's completely capable of learning. So what we will see is what we thought was the truth, and we realize, oh, that's not quite right. I am not this. I'm sort of this, but I'm also something else, more mysterious. The certainties that we see become less certain. We start seeing through that what we thought was solid, what we thought was an object, what we thought was so, we see more and more. It wasn't quite what we thought. It becomes more and more of a mysterious flow. Less and less certain, less and less describable, less and less belonging in the realm of language, deepening into the mystery. We just keep seeing through if we keep looking. So the truth reveals itself to our ready minds, and our job is to have a ready mind. I'll end with a quote. I was passionate. I searched far and wide. But the day the truth found me, I was at home. By Lulldeth, she's a 14th century Tibetan woman. Let's sit quietly for a minute. I was passionate. I searched far and wide. But the day the truth found me, I was at home. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.